0: Hey, it's Todd, your host for this edition of the News Roundup. Just a quick heads up before we start the show. The news is constantly changing, and things might have changed by the time you hear this episode. Stay up to date with the news by listening to your local NPR member station and by visiting NPR.org for all the latest. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the show. You're listening to the 1A podcast. I'm Todd Zwillick with Vice News, and it's time for another edition of the News Roundup. Let's get into it.
1: Rather than abide by Georgia's legal process for election challenges, the defendants engaged in a criminal racketeering enterprise to overturn Georgia's presidential election result.
0: There is, of course... Other news this week, we'll make time for the latest from Hawaii and a ruling from the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals that sets up a huge Supreme Court confrontation tied again to abortion. With me this week, Ryan Teague Beckwith, politics reporter at Bloomberg News. Cheryl Gay Stolberg is here, Washington correspondent at The New York Times, and Ron Elving from NPR. Welcome to you all. I'm so glad that you're here. Um, Cheryl, Ryan, Ron, it's always good to see all of you. Um, let's start. With what Willis is talking about, Fannie Willis, that is, the district attorney of Fulton County in Georgia. Former President Donald Trump and 18 co-defendants have until August 25th now to voluntarily surrender to authorities in Fulton County. That's after a grand jury handed down that long, detailed list. Of charges on Tuesday. The 41 count indictment includes 13 charges against the former president. It accuses him of being the head of, quote, a criminal enterprise to overturn his electoral defeat in that state. And it's a story that prosecutors say actually has uh, a part of a broad and illegal conspiracy. Trump is now facing 91 total charges against four separate indictments, all while running for president in 2024. He denies any wrongdoing. He claims all of this is politically motivated. That's the setup. Ron, this latest indictment, Georgia, Rico, the conspiracy, and the rest of it, what stands out for you in this it's, latest indictment?
2: It's different from the other indictments in a fundamental set of ways. First, it's a state indictment. It's Georgia. It is not a federal case. Significance of that is that should Trump be convicted on any of these counts, he cannot be pardoned by a president himself perhaps in the future or some other sympathetic president would not have the power to pardon him, would not have the power to, in essence, call off the whole prosecution as might happen with respect to Jack Smith's investigation, the federal charges that have been brought against him in a couple of cases. Uh, That could theoretically be peeled back if time were available by a sympathetic president. Can't happen in Georgia. Where the governor Is the only person who can pardon. And that pardon power is severely limited and requires that you actually serve your time first. Well, that's pretty much losing the game. So Donald Trump is in a different kind of hot water because this is a state case. Number two, as you said, it's a conspiracy. So there are 18 co defendants, and that raises the possibility of people seeing their way clear to protect themselves by telling the truth of what happened to them, and that could be bad. That could be bad for the person at the center of the conspiracy. This is different from the way Jack Smith went at it, just going at Trump. And also, as you said, this is brought under a particular statute called the Racketeer Influenced Corrupt Organizations statute. It's federal, then there's a state version. The state version is actually a bit stickier because it means anything, any of these 18 people, and there are other people involved too, anything they have done even if it would not in and of itself be a crime, if it furthers the conspiracy, well, there you go. When you
0: you read the indictment, it is filled with things, um, overt acts they're called, that don't, well, aren't illegal. And there's been a lot of chatter, especially pushback from people uh, who are upset that the president has been charged. Well, tweeting is a First Amendment right. These are... Acts in furtherance of the conspiracy. I always say, um, Ron, if you and I decide to rob a bank, and that's what we agree to, and you go out and buy a ladder to get into the bank, buying a ladder isn't illegal, but you've taken an overt act that sure could be. So that's how I digest that. Cheryl, um, given the story that this ninety-eight page indictment tells, what what stood out to you the most?
1: Well. What stands out to me is that it's really a cast of characters, if you will. This is a narrative um, that plays out almost uh, like a drama. And there are 19 people charged in this indictment. Of course, we know about President Trump, but there are some other very, very prominent people who are now facing criminal charges as a result of what happened in Georgia, Uh, names Pretty much every American will recognize include Rudy Giuliani, Trump's lawyer, the former mayor of New York, uh, who is now facing racketeering charges, uh, the same charges, as you mentioned in the introduction, that uh, he used to prosecute organized crime when he was uh, U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York. Uh, Mark Meadows, the White House or former White House Chief of Staff. The prosecutors say that he showed up at a vote counting facility and put the president on the phone with a top elections investigator uh, in order to pressure them to overturn the results, to find those, quote unquote, 11,800 votes that the president insisted he wanted in Georgia. Uh, John Eastman, a legal architect of the whole effort to keep Trump in power, has also been charged. And I'm struck that Of these 18 co-defendants, six of them are lawyers. And Hmm. to me, that is really astonishing to have members of the legal community charged with crimes uh, for aiding and abetting a former president in an effort to overturn American democracy.
0: I think it is astonishing. And and, and many of the same group, Cheryl, you're right, many of the same group— are not indicted, but are named as co-conspirators in the federal case. A lot of the same group, and all of Trump's uh, gaggle. I think Mike Pence referred to them as a group of, I think he said, crackpot lawyers.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. And there are also a couple of uh, bit players, if you will, um, including a former publicist for uh, Ye, the the artist formerly known as Kanye West, who is said to have taken part in this effort to. Pressure a Fulton County election worker to falsely uh, admit committing fraud on, on election day. And that's another thing that really stands out to me in this indictment is the, um, the detail of the pressuring of these two black elections workers, the maligning of these elections workers uh, who were publicly attacked by former Mayor Giuliani and who wound up facing threats and harassment and intimidation because of it.
0: But Ryan Teague Beckwith, going forward now, uh, Donald Trump and the others start to be arraigned beginning on September 5th. That's the schedule now. We'll see if it slips. But Georgia has bail rules that are different than in other states or even in federal court. And even before this indictment, Donald Trump was making statements that a judge could interpret as intimidating witnesses. So what could happen here?
3: Uh, Yeah, this has been a persistent problem in all of these uh, criminal cases, which is that Trump's rhetoric, uh, dating back to when he first started running for president, has always been very derogatory towards the criminal justice system. He has typically portrayed any prosecutor, any judge, anyone involved in that as being um, biased against him, uh, some kind of liberal activist, regardless of their background, Maybe even not, you know, quite American, and that rhetoric is very heated. And I think a lot of people, you know, interpret that as hyperbole. But some of his supporters don't. And in the Georgia case in particular, the charging documents included the names of the members of the grand jury under state law. They were required to. These are 26 people who were basically called in, shown the evidence that had been um, compiled, and asked, "Do you think that there's enough?" material here for us to go to trial and they said yes and that's pretty much what grand juries do <laughs> they're called in they look at this stuff and they say yeah there's enough here to go to trial they're not saying that you're guilty or whatever uh those just from those names um a number of people who were involved in the pizzagate conspiracy and some of that sort of QAnon things and a number of sort of anonymous trump supporters uh, began circulating those names online. They began attaching home addresses and social media profiles, not all of which are actually of the members of the grand jury, some of which are just from people who have a similar name, and putting them in places online that uh, where typically people might go to, uh, to find information to act on it. So there's a potential here that some of these grand jury members could be threatened, uh, could face people coming outside their home, or trying to track them down in real life. Um, we saw this in the original January 6th, uh, you know, when, the, when he was claiming that the election was being stolen. Some of his supporters were texting, uh, you know, elections officials in different states, threatening messages. I recall there was one case where a, an election official received text messages of photos of her daughter.
0: And we should say, um, Ryan, that this, that this case, uh, the, the potential for intimidation and threats is by no means hypothetical. Just on Wednesday, Ron, briefly, a woman was arrested in Texas for threatening to kill the judge who is presiding over the federal coup case here in Washington, direct threats and already
2: arrested. That's right. And there are indications already that elsewhere, people are hooking up with this information. And Making threats, we hope, are not serious, but which, if they are serious, would be serious crimes.
0: We're going to talk a little bit more about the potential threats and what they could mean for Donald Trump when he goes to be arraigned and to try to make bail in Georgia. A lot more of the roundup still ahead. Stay with us.
4: Listen to Embedded for moments that stay with you.
0: I could smell the smoke. I could smell the dust. Voices
4: that resonate. (laughs) Stories that change the way you think about your life. How how did we get here? The Embedded podcast is NPR's home for original documentary series. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Let's get back to the conversation. One thing to point out as we talk about threats and intimidation of either witnesses um, or judges or prosecutors. Georgia's bail law, when Donald Trump is arraigned, requires the defendant to show, the onus is on the defendant requires the defendant to show that they are not a threat to potential witnesses, intimidation. It's something that Donald Trump will have to show the judge under the law, in order to go free when he's arraigned. It's hard to imagine a judge remanding him in Georgia, but that is the law. So that's going to be issued when you watch what I'm sure will be a very high profile and a very televised arraignment sometime uh, after September 5th. Well, Ron, um, the former president was promising a big reveal on Monday on his social media platform. He said that he would present, quote, a large, complex, detailed, but irrefutable report on the presidential election fraud which took place in Georgia. Now, Donald Trump does not have any such irrefutable proof. I'm willing to stipulate that. But he also now says the big event is off. What's going on?
2: There's a lot of disappointment uh, on the part of many people, Trump supporters, surely, who had expected or hoped at least that he would finally make the big reveal of the evidence on which he based his apparent – Belief, Whether it was an actual belief or not is in dispute. But uh, they wanted to see the goods. They wanted to see the evidence and people have been asking to see it now for two and a half years. Uh, The disappointment also I think extends to those who were hoping to see what he thought was irrefutable so that they could, among other things, refute it. So the president has now the former President has now announced in the same manner uh, that he will not be having that event on Monday because his lawyers have advised him it's best to provide this irrefutable evidence when they get to trial, and uh, so perhaps we will get to see it when that case eventually reaches trial. The other question, of course, is whether or not there was anything to produce or show or reveal in the first place.
0: If there was in the first place, indeed, I can't say for sure. That sounded to me, it read to me as though Donald Trump's lawyers had finally talked him down off the ledge and said, don't do this. Whatever we have, Mr. President, let's do it in court. Please don't get on live TV. It would be a bad idea. Well, let's talk about some of the political reaction to these Georgia indictments this week. Two moments to talk about here. The first one is from the former vice president, Mike Pence, speaking on Wednesday. This is in Indianapolis.
2: Despite what the former president and his allies have said for now more than two and a half years, the Georgia election was not stolen, and I had no right to overturn the election on January 6th.
0: Mike Pence uh, is seeking the Republican Party's nomination for president in 2014, and we heard this from Hillary Clinton, who was the candidate that Donald Trump defeated back in 2016.
1: The only satisfaction may be that the system is working, that
4: all of the efforts by Donald Trump, his allies and his enablers to try
1: to silence uh, the truth, to try to undermine uh, democracy, have been brought into the light and justice is being pursued.
0: Ryan, uh, Donald Trump, of course, faces 91 charges across these four separate indictments, but it's pretty clear, at least so far, it has made no impact really, except for possible potential small improvement uh, with the Republican base and their view of him. Is there any indication that his primary opponents are sharpening their attacks against the former president or or not? Are they just blowing past this?
3: I think that you're hearing more uh, from um, Ron DeSantis has been leaning a little bit in that direction. Mike Pence has, I think, come to a grudging acceptance that there is no way for him personally to get out of talking about this, and it's probably the only way that he makes news most of the time when he's on the campaign trail. So you're hearing more from him on that. On the other side, Vivek Ramaswamy has really leaned in heavily to the I will pardon Trump, he did did nothing wrong uh, kind of rhetoric as these cases have progressed. So I think that just by the dint of the fact that he's the frontrunner, he does not seem to be going anywhere, and they are increasingly looking into their toolbox for, like, another tool to try to uh, pry loose the nomination, uh, you're going to hear more going forward. I think also that there's a sort of a cumulative effect uh, as the number of indictments have, have uh, grown, as DeSantis sort of attempted to square the circle by saying, You know, the problem here is not whether or not he did these things, but how can this guy be effective if he's facing all these indictments? Which is, you know, hardly uh, a condemnation, but it is a sort of way of hinting at look at all these legal problems that he has, and, you know, do we really want that in our nominee? Uh, Without saying that he necessarily did anything. Um, but I have heard stronger statements from them about the 2020 election not necessarily being stolen.
0: We got this comment from David in Austin, Texas, who says, Everyone has been tiptoeing around Trump, fearing his wrath. It's good to finally see someone, i.e. Georgia, go full force and put it all out on the table against him and all the enablers that backed him up. But Cheryl, back to the politics. Ryan just said something interesting, which was sort of a warning that have come from candidates that Donald Trump might not be the best candidate to win. A primary is one thing, but it's really about the general election. And, and I wonder what you've seen, if anything, about uh, Republicans who make Donald Trump very popular still, um, whether they're contending with the fact, um, with the idea that maybe this won't be such a popular uh, resume for a candidate um, when we get to a general election in 2024
1: important point, Todd. We know that um, in a in a primary race with a strongly Republican electorate, and let's remember who turns out to vote in primaries, often the, the staunchest uh, members of the party. In a primary race, Trump is still way ahead. I think he's ahead of DeSantis by something like 37 points. But in a general election, uh, and more broadly, things get A little bit difficult for him. We did see a slight dip in his approval rating um, after uh, one of the earlier indictments. And I think that if Republicans have a path, or, or his Republican challengers have a path to ousting him as the front runner, it's probably the path that DeSantis is trying to take, which is not criticizing Trump directly, but just saying, well, He's got all these problems, and he's really not going to make a good general election candidate. So we've got to pick somebody else who's not going to be going on trial in the middle of the election campaign.
0: Pick somebody who's not going on trial in the middle of a campaign. <laughs> 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 they didn't teach me that in political science, but I guess back then they didn't have to. Let's Speaking of former candidates, let's talk about Rudy Giuliani. We have to talk about Rudy Giuliani. Rudy Giuliani maintains that he's done nothing wrong. Here's what he said on his WABC radio show just on Tuesday. The
2: last two indictments he's indicted for exercising his First Amendment rights. I'm indicted for being his lawyer. I never thought I'd ever get indicted for being a lawyer. I thought when I was doing this, I was protected by the fact I was defending him. I'm supposed to argue in his favor.
0: Cheryl, I'm going to come back to you. You get priority here because, I guess, New York Times. I mean, your know, home, home team <laughs> take here. Um Rudy's kind of mirroring the advice of counsel there, but the counsel says I did nothing wrong either. How far does this defense go? He was just doing his job.
1: Well, so I think we have to really draw a distinction here about what a lawyer's job is. Right? A lawyer can defend a guilty person even knowing that person is guilty. That is not a crime. But a lawyer cannot commit a crime in pursuit of representing his client. And there's a there's a big distinction there, and uh, in that statement, Giuliani uh, doesn't draw that distinction. It's interesting to note that Giuliani has already said he's in essence already fessed up to one of the accusations against him. Uh, he attacked these poll workers and accused them of um, nefarious deeds, and he's already said in court papers that you know those statements were false. So I I think he's going to have trouble with this kind of defense.
0: He may also have trouble making a deal. You know, in a racketeering case, you run to try to make a deal, plead guilty and testify. Former prosecutors tell me Rudy has trouble for the exact reason you just mentioned, Cheryl. He's already said his past statements are false. What kind of a witness would he be if he's not credible? What value is he to plead guilty if he's not credible? But Ryan, Rudy Giuliani, he's also staring down. A lot of debt, hundreds of thousands of dollars in legal bills, in addition to these new criminal charges related to his work for Donald Trump after the 2020 election. Um, in court on Monday, Rudy told the court that his legal quagmires have left him basically out of cash. He's selling his apartment in New York, six and a half million dollars. How much do we know about how far in the hole Rudy really is, Ryan?
3: I mean, the the main problem that he has here is that he is fighting a war on multiple fronts. I mean, he is he is being personally sued by a voting machine company over the statements that he made in Trump's defense. He's also being sued by those two election workers who he maligned, and he's basically already had to admit that, yeah, he was just making that up. Um, And he's facing these racketeering charges. He's had his law license suspended in New York, and a panel of judges has recommended that his D.C. law license be, be disbarred. Uh, he's just facing, a, and he's facing a sexual harassment lawsuit. Man, it's it's he's basically the only person I know who's facing as much legal trouble as Donald Trump uh, in as many different jurisdictions on as many different issues. So he's, there's just no way out of this for him because each of these cases alone could be a kind of career-ending, you know, bankrupting kind of case. But added together, uh, they complicate everything in the sense that Trying to resolve one case will leave him only more vulnerable in one of the other cases. So I don't see how he's going to have a happy ending here in any way.
0: Um, Stepping away from Donald Trump's case just for a moment, he's only the latest person to face accountability for January 6th. Leaders of the Proud Boys, including Enrique Terrio and Joe Biggs, were convicted of seditious conspiracy in the insurrection. Their conviction was back in May. Now federal prosecutors are asking the judge to sentence them up to 30 years in prison. A big ask, Ron. Why is this sentencing request so notable?
2: Seditious conspiracy. Those are the key words, at least in my mind. Those are the words that describe what these rioters were doing on January 6th. They were not just breaking in and ransacking the United States Capitol, They were also trying to disrupt and did for a matter of some hours disrupt the process by which the election of the new president was being certified by Congress. They weren't making the decision. They were certifying. They were making it official. They were saying this is what the Electoral College has done back on December 14th in response to the voting of the actual voters back in November. That is the process. That is the way it has always proceeded all the way back to George Washington. And that was interrupted for hours and was in the process of being stopped cold by this conspiracy and by these rioters. Now, I don't think everybody who broke into the Capitol that day was fully briefed on the program by any means. But the the jury in this particular case ruled that these individuals were involved in making that intentional decision to commit those acts. And that is seditious conspiracy of the highest order.
0: And an ask again of the judge for sentences 27 years, 30 years, the government is upset with the sentence that another militia leader, Stuart Rhodes of the Oath Keepers, got. They're trying to revisit that. So prosecutors going for main accountability here. Let's shift away from legal accountability for the coup attempt on the United States and talk about some of the politics ahead and talk about the Inflation Reduction Act, because this week, President Biden marked one year since he signed that Inflation Reduction Act into law.
2: One year ago, with your leadership, I signed the Inflation Reduction Act into law. And one of the most significant laws I think has ever been enacted, taking on the special interest and winning and winning.
0: That law includes landmark climate provisions that aim to dramatically shift the economy away from fossil fuels. And Cheryl, the Biden campaign is really talking a big game here with the Inflation Reduction Act, but, but a lot of the benefits for consumers are either just rolling out now, they'll be rolling out soon, they haven't seen the benefit yet. How does the IRA fit into President Biden's political plans for 2024?
1: Well, I think that President Biden is really... Um He's leaning on the IRA. I mean, this is his signature legislative... Accomplishment. It's a wide-ranging bill. It addresses uh, not only climate change, but another issue that is really closer to the hearts, probably, of many Americans, especially older Americans, who vote, and that is um, prescription drug prices. So he's gotten a couple of um, notches under his belt there. Insulin prices are now down to $35 a month for older Americans, and that um, that's a big deal. Uh, pretty soon, uh, by September 1st, we're going to see the Federal Federal government roll out a list of 10 prescription drugs that uh, Medicare will now be able to negotiate with the, their makers over price. And that's a big deal. But you're right, Todd, that consumers aren't really seeing a lot of change in their pocketbooks just yet. A lot of these provisions are going to roll out over time. So the, the president is going to have to talk about um, the promise of the future when he when he talks about this bill, but he is going to lean heavily on it. We're going to hear him talk a lot about it, as we did this week uh, when he marked the one year anniversary of its passage.
0: And the White House has been trying to point out boosts in manufacturing thanks to that bill. So I think you're right. We're going to be hearing a lot more about it. We'll be back with more in just a moment.
4: I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR, where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR.
3: Big news stories don't always break on your
4: schedule. But with the NPR app, news, culture, and podcasts are ready when you want them. In your pocket. Download the NPR app today.
0: Well, next, let's move to the terrible scenes we've been watching for more than a week in Maui. Residents face a second week of agony as the search for victims of the massive wildfires there continue. The death toll has reached at least 111 people. Uh, Cheryl Gay Stolberg of the New York Times, over 1,000 people are still unaccounted for as of Wednesday, according to the governor of Hawaii, Josh Green. Um, How's the search going? Can you give us an update on the latest there?
1: Well, I think the first thing to say is this is a very complicated search and recovery. Um, Governor Green described it as kind of a tragic combination of a fire and a hurricane. Uh, There are toxic particles in the air from plastic and rubber and metal that burned in the fires. They may be in the drinking water. Um, The recovery is taking place on an island. That makes it difficult. It's not like aid workers can simply drive to the state next door Um, and the toll is is enormous. And there's an enormous team on the ground there. Um, President Biden turned around an emergency declaration pretty quickly in about six hours. There are military folks on the ground. There are canine dogs going through houses. and um, But it's still a very difficult situation. I think in, it, we've seen this before, right? We saw this certainly with the uh, Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans, that their tensions and frustrations are running very high. People have not been able to get back to their homes. I think the governor just opened the road yesterday so that people can get from east to west across the island, and they're allowing movement from 6 in the morning until 10 at night. But still, basic needs aren't being met. Um, people need water, food, housing. They're separated from their their medicine. Um, so it's, it is, it's slow, it's difficult, um, and it's tragic.
0: There has been criticism of Maui officials for not sounding a siren during the fires, and Maui's emergency management agency chief resigned on Thursday after defending the decision not to out- activate that outdoor alert system. Here's a Democratic governor, Josh Green, on the investigation into the causes of the
6: fire. Some of that water that wasn't released makes me very worried. We're looking at that. And every state has a different policy on this. How do you determine when to shut power off or leave it on for Mm -hmm. polls? Like everyone, we're worried about what the causes of the fire were, but also if you shut down power, you shut down some internal infrastructure. Would a siren have helped or not? I've had a lot of people tell me different things. Some of the survivors told me they wish they had heard a siren. Other survivors told me, They thought sirens were always for tsunami and they would have immediately gone up mountain
0: toward the fires, what the governor is saying there. Ron, what else do we know about how the fire started and once started, why they became so deadly?
2: The short answer to the latter part of that question would just be high winds. High winds have been a problem for wildfire fighters uh, since people started fighting wildfires. Uh, it's, it's usually a spark and a high wind in a dry environment. Well, we know that we are dealing with dry environment in almost all parts of the world. Unusually dry. Even for most people, it's hard to imagine Hawaii is anything but a burdened paradise. But there are parts of the islands that are quite different. So here you had a, not a tinderbox necessarily, but you had vulnerable area. And there is still fire in Maui, there are still fires burning actively there. Uh, not in not in inhabited areas, but there are inhabited areas. So the, you get the spark into those conditions, and then you have high winds that turn the spark into a wildfire and spread it like mad, and there's plenty of fuel, and there was not a good concerted emergency response. Now, what provided the spark? What's the Smokey the Bear question here? And it appears there's a, been a lot of reporting that at least would seem to implicate a power line that came down, started a small fire, and then that fire was blown into a
0: conflagration. Became a big fire. There's also a, the geography of the area where fleeing away from the fire was not really possible because that's ocean. Fleeing to the sides is one highway and that became clogged. And tragically, many people seem to have died in their cars. Well, on Tuesday, President Biden said, yes, he does plan to visit Maui.
2: My wife, Jill, and I are going to travel to Hawaii as soon as we can. That's what I've been talking to the governor about. I don't want to get in the way. I've been to too many disaster areas. But I want to go and make sure we got everything they need. I want to be sure we don't disrupt the ongoing recovery efforts. FEMA Administrator Griswold, who's the best we ever had, I think, was on the ground this weekend. I just talked to her. She's back in the States. I have directed her to uh, streamline the process.
0: Now, over the weekend when the president was asked about the rising death toll by a reporter, he responded with a no comment. And Ryan, that no comment got an angry reaction from some people, not just Republicans, I'll point out. Uh, What has the White House been doing to uh, repair whatever damage there may have been from that moment?
3: They've, they've definitely ha- been trying to put him a little bit more front and center on this. The issue here seemed to be that there were multiple uh, sort of things that Biden has tried to do. Uh, one of them is to stay out of the news generally, another is to stay out of the news when Donald Trump is facing legal problems. And another has been to stay out of the news when his son Hunter has been facing legal problems. Uh, so he was really trying to just go and be on vacation while all of that was going down. And not get before reporters who might throw a question at him about either Trump or his son. And uh, I think that was why the initial no comment was that he was just operating under that, let's just not be on TV. Um, but the split screen there of him on vacation, uh, you know, biking, uh, not talking to reporters, and then just the devastation in Hawaii really was not a good look for him. Um, It's especially kind of puzzling because one of his fortes has always been showing empathy for people in these kinds of situations, um, playing the sort of the healing role of the president. Uh, It was one of the things that was a a contrast that he drew with Trump, who was really bad at that. Uh, And so kind of surprising that he didn't leap on that right away when it came out. Uh, And then I think... um, it, from a public relations standpoint, it just looks bad. It looks disconnected. I don't think that there's a concern yet that I've heard that the response hasn't been there. I mean, FEMA is involved. They're sending the supplies. And I think there's a defensible argument that he shouldn't go there. Um, the president showing up in town is sort of like throwing a surprise wedding for 500 people. Like it's, It is a logistical nightmare, and it is not something that people in a town that has been completely burned to the ground really want to do. Um, So I think it makes sense for him to hold back on visiting there personally, but the pressure for him to visit now is higher because he initially sort of faltered in his response to this.
0: It's hard to imagine that Joe Biden would have needed a reminder that the president is never completely on vacation, even when he's on vacation. Um, So Dealing with the the fallout of that moment, I'm sure. Um, I want to also point out that we're keeping an eye on Hurricane Hillary. Hillary has strengthened to a Category 4 storm early Friday. It's expected to weaken before reaching California, but the National Weather Service has warned that the system is expected to bring significant impacts to the Southwest this weekend and early into next week. So we'll be keeping our eyes on that. Now, the abortion pill is headed back for a Supreme Court showdown. On Wednesday, a federal appeals court in the Fifth Circuit in New Orleans upheld a ruling that would limit access to the pill mifepristone by mail. They also said that drug should not be prescribed after seven weeks of pregnancy. Mifepristone is used in about 98 percent of medical abortions, which are Over half of all abortions in the United States, according to the Guttmacher Institute. They're an abortion rights organization. In response to a DOJ request in April, the Supreme Court stayed any lower court decisions related to the case. While it works its way through appeals, that means the new restrictions still won't go into effect Yet, but Cheryl, you've followed this story and written about uh, not only mifepristone but reproductive healthcare so much. Tell us more about how this case originated and, and why it's headed back to the Supreme Court now.
1: Okay, so here's here's what you need to know. Um, mifepristone is one half of a two drug combination that can induce an abortion, and it was first approved in the FDA in 2000. But in more recent years, the agency has taken steps to um, to make it easier to obtain. As you mentioned, Todd, um, mifepristone can now be dispensed by mail. That's because the uh, FDA removed the in person dispensing requirement in 2021. So uh, some abortion opponents um, basically took this to court and a federal district court judge in Texas ruled that the agencies, not only that the moves to relax the restrictions should be reversed, but also to suspend the underlying approval. They basically were trying to overturn the FDA. And this is really, really important. The stakes in this case are very high, not just for the abortion pill itself, but also for the authority of the FDA because here we have a court ruling that the agency uh, that the agency's decision can be overturned. This has never happened before. So now, as you said, it's landed in the appeals court. The appeals court issued a split ruling. It said that the newer um, newer requirements or the loosening of the requirements should be reversed, but it declined to overturn the FDA's approval. Um, we know that the Justice Department is going to be asking the Supreme Court to review that ruling. So now the court, the Supreme Court, will basically be in the position of deciding. A, whether or not this drug, this abortion drug, can continue to be dispensed, but B, whether the FDA's administrative authority to approve and regulate food, drugs, and cosmetics in this country is intact, or whether it can be subject to court review.
0: When the Food and Drug Administration approves things based on a standard of safe and effective, which for this drug it did 20 years ago, Cheryl points out that, yes, the court will be reviewing whether For controversial drugs, say, drugs that have political salience, will that authority stand? We're going to see that case when it heads back to the Supreme Court. But Cheryl, I want to stay with you just for a moment. The Washington Post released an investigation into the Smithsonian here in Washington. It turns out the Smithsonian has 255 brains From the dead bodies of mostly black and indigenous people in the early 20th century, it likely took them without the consent of those people or their families. So Cheryl, how does this revelation fit into an ongoing conversation that institutions are having about human remains in their collections and and the propriety of keeping those?
1: Um, you know, I think this was a really stunning investigation by the Washington Post, so revealing and so important, detailing a legacy of racism that was perpetuated by the Smithsonian Museum, one of the most venerated institutions in America. And um, it kind of reminds me a little bit of the case of Henrietta Lacks. You may have heard of the Henrietta Lacks, a black woman whose cells were taken without her consent decades ago. And had been used by pharmaceutical companies and medical researchers, generating billions of dollars of income for those entities without any um, compensation for her family. And in this case, uh, the families of these uh, of the folks whose brains were taken, those that the Washington Post were, were able to find, at least, um, were really devastated and felt violated and um the investigation has sparked a number of changes already, even before it was published. The Smithsonian established a task force uh, to look into this. The Smithsonian Secretary, Lonnie Bunch, who himself is a black man who helped found the and was really the driving force behind the National Museum of African American History, uh, has issued a statement apologizing for how... The Smithsonian has collected many of its human remains, and um, he has said that this task force will now determine uh, what to do with them and how to get them back to the families uh, to whom they belonged.
0: Yet another American institution grappling with um, its decisions of the past and how it chose to Well, in this case, disrespect the dignity of of so many Americans. That's Cheryl Gay Stolberg, Washington correspondent for The New York Times. Also with us for this edition of the Domestic News Roundup was Brian Teague Beckwith from Bloomberg News and NPR's Ron Elving. Thank you all so much for being here. Coming up, the biggest headlines from around the world. Stay with us for the global edition of the News Roundup right after this quick break.
6: Okay, close your eyes for a second. Now imagine you're on your dream vacation. No work calls to answer, no text messages to respond to, just your suitcase and an opportunity. The opportunity to just take yourself out of your routine and travel deeper. How to actually take that dream trip. That's on the Life Kit Podcast from NPR. Jasmine Morris
4: here from the StoryCorps
7: Podcast. Our latest season is called My Way. Stories of people who found a rhythm all their own and marched to it throughout their lives. Consequences and other people's opinions be damned. You won't believe the courage and audacity in these stories. Hear them on the StoryCorps podcast from NPR.
1: On It's Been a Minute, we're keeping you in the know when it comes to culture. I break down the latest trends and the forces behind them and introduce you to the creatives who think deeply about how we live today. Come for some
4: good old cultural analysis and have a few laughs with me. Listen to the It's Been a Minute
0: podcast from NPR. It's the global edition of the News Roundup. Coming up, a quick trip around the globe to take a look at some of the biggest stories in the headlines. We'll spend some time in Africa the United Nations says the conflict in Sudan is out of control and a humanitarian group slams the world's indifference as racist. We'll also get to the latest news in the post-coup developments in Niger.
7: The
6: government has
3: gathered the necessary evidence
6: to prosecute the ousted president and his accomplices for high treason and undermining the internal and external security of Niger.
0: And North Korea confirms a U.S. soldier, Travis King, is in the country, but the Biden administration treads carefully.
6: We have raised this case through the appropriate channels that exist to send messages and communicate to the DPRK. We have done so over the course of this process and have not gotten, aside from that one confirmation message to, to, to U.N. officials, have not received any communication from the DPRK on this.
0: And the teams are set for the FIFA Women's World Cup this weekend, and it is a big matchup.
4: It's coming home. It's
0: coming. But is it coming home? Is it? England is confident in their lionesses, but Spain and La Roja might say, lo siento to that. All that and more with our expert panel today. Nina Maria Potts is director of Global News Coverage for Feature Story News. Welcome back, Nina. Thank you. And I know you're rooting for the lionesses there. Uh, Idris Ali is national security and foreign policy correspondent at Reuters. Idris, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Nick Wadams is here also. He's national security team leader at Bloomberg News. Nick, as always, thanks for your time. Thanks for being here.
6: Thanks very much.
0: So let's start with a conflict that you may not have heard much about lately. In Sudan, Sudan has plunged into chaos since April, when months of simmering tensions between the military, led by General Abdu Fatah al-Burhan, and uh, and the Rapid Support Forces, commanded by Mohammed Hamdan Dagalo, exploded into open fighting in the capital of Khartoum. Now the country is facing the threat of all-out war. Uh, Nick, in a joint statement on Tuesday, UN agencies said, "Quote: Time is running out for farmers to plant the crops that will feed them and their neighbors. Medical supplies are scarce. The situation is spiraling out of control. Um, there have been a series of failed ceasefires. How bad has this latest round of violence been?
5: Uh, Well, it's gotten really, really bad. I mean, there's just no other way to put it. That UN report talked about more than 4 million people fleeing the conflict uh, uh, a lot of internal displacements. Um, one uh, one quote from humanitarian agencies called it a death sentence for you uh, for, for for children. So uh, I mean, what you're seeing here is the real failure, both uh, externally by countries to get uh, the uh, fighting forces in Sudan to commit to any sort of f- ceasefire. And also just uh, tension, uh, the outright conflict between the two sides only continues to get worse and, and appears to be spreading back to uh, the Darfur region. And then you now have the two leaders, uh, Burhan and uh, DeGallo, essentially now accusing each other of war crimes. Um, the uh, Burhan went, uh, gave a a speech on Monday and, and accused the Gullah of war crimes. So it just, it just feels like it's getting worse and worse and the international community. is essentially powerless to do anything.
0: Nina, the army second in command has said that a plan to end the deadly conflict needs to be negotiated and a caretaker government has to be formed. Um, That's encouraging in a sense that it's not calling for more fighting, I suppose, but so far efforts led by Saudi Arabia and the United States, as Nick just mentioned, um, to negotiate a lasting ceasefire have basically stalled and have been quite useless. What has the RSF said about um, what they want to do to end the fighting?
7: Well, I think there's a difference between what they say and what their motives are. I mean, I think one of the biggest challenges in Sudan is that there are too many peace processes working in parallel are underway. There's, there's no unity in trying to resolve the conflict. It's all piecemeal. Uh, Sudan's immediate neighbours have launched one process, the wider region another, and then there are different governments, as you mentioned, from the international community. And that lack of unity is playing very much to the warring party's advantage. There are just too many processes operating to, you know, broker peace, but they're not working together. I mean, Chad, for instance, is leading the group of Sudan's immediate border neighbours. Uh, you mentioned Saudi and the US also trying to mediate. Uh, And then there's the regional grouping involved as well. Um, I mean, there's also an entirely separate bilateral dynamic. Uh, For instance, South Sudan, which is an oil producer, it physically depends on Sudan to transport its oil to the international market. So it's getting increasingly desperate. Um, And I think even if dialogue or a ceasefire holds inside Sudan, this particular form of tribal and ethnic violence could spread. I mean, it has already spread across Sudan to other cities, but it could spread across Sudan's borders. And that's for a specific reason, which is that border countries like South Sudan just don't have the infrastructure to support, you know, the hundreds of thousands of people now spilling over. Uh, And the RSF, I mean, to come back to them, they are Big. I mean, they have at least 150,000 fighters, or certainly up to 150,000 fighters, and they keep recruiting more fighters. They're deepening their connection to, to countries like Russia. Uh, so it's just worth mentioning that not everyone sees the immediate benefit of peace. Uh, Very much Mm -hmm. at the cost of the Sudanese people. And if
0: they think it's not in their incentive, then the immediate reach to peace is unlikely unlikely to succeed. I think that's the key point there. Well, you mentioned Darfur and last week, UN official Martha Onchapobi spoke about Darfur at a meeting of the UN Security Council. Listen.
1: The fighting in Darfur continues to reopen the old wounds of ethnic tension of past conflicts in the region. The brutal violence experienced in El Ganena and Serba are particular examples of this situation. This is deeply worrying and could quickly engulf the country in a prolonged ethnic conflict with regional spillovers.
0: Idris uh, Khartoum, the capital, has been devastated by the fighting, but it's also sparked these ethnically driven attacks in Darfur. Um, give us some more detail on what's happening there.
6: Yeah, I think it's helpful to sort of just go back and see where this started, right? So in 2003, we had the Sudanese military and its armed forces go into Darfur and really go after these non-Arab communities. And and they were really relying on these Arab uh, forces and militias known as the Janjaweed. And so that conflict has been going on for the past 20 years. And the RSF really developed from those Janjaweed um, forces. And over the, you know, past 20 years, periodically, we will see them um, attacking communities in the Darfur, leading to, you know, mass evacuations and migrations from the region. And so that dynamic is sort of coming up again. What we've seen is the RSF, according to the um, Sudan Conflict Observatory, which is based in the United States, saying that as um, sort of a couple of weeks ago, the RSF was responsible for destroying about 26 communities in the Darfur and displacing 668,000 civilians um, just since mid-April. And so it's one of those dynamics that has been there for the past 20 years. It's, like you said, uh, reopening sort of these ethnically charged wounds and violence and leading to a lot of displacements. Um, The one difference that I think we're seeing this time compared to the last time is the RSF was working with the uh, former president, Omar al-Bashir, you know, essentially for the past 20 years. And now you have a situation where the um, military leaders in Khartoum really aren't on the same side as the RSF. So I think there's a lot of interest in seeing how this develops between the RSF, um, the folks that they're fighting in Khartoum, and whether the Sudanese army will in some way sort of step in in Darfur. And again, you know, the big concern is, does it lead to a situation like in 2014 and 2015, when we saw sort of this mass migration to places like South Sudan, Chad. And if that happens, I think there's, there's a lot of concern um, about what that could lead to and sort of the spiral um, it could unleash. Mm. I want to talk a
0: little bit more about that. Idris Ali of Reuters, Nina Maria Potts from Feature Story News is here, and Nick Wadhams of Bloomberg. Uh, Nina, to that point, what Idris just mentioned, the potential spillover to neighboring states, which you also alluded to just a couple of moments ago. The humanitarian situation in Sudan does threaten to destabilize neighboring countries. Can you just, for a minute here, help us get our heads around that risk?
7: Well, it is a huge risk. But I I mean, I would argue that the international headlines are focused on the people that have fled. Um, We have a cameraman and a correspondent still inside Sudan. They had to flee Khartoum. Uh, They've both got extended family in Khartoum. And they describe Um, What's going on is beyond the description of war. Um, I think the untold story of those who are left behind, uh, who've basically decided to face death with dignity inside their houses rather than the street because they can't guarantee a safe route out is just utterly, utterly horrific. Um, you know, members of our correspondent's family basically would rather face starvation from inside the walls of their houses rather than, uh, than risk uh, dying at the hands of gangs in Khartoum. Bodies are piling up outside their doors. Uh, in some streets in Khartoum, uh, the two opposing factions, they have to negotiate with both of them. Uh, so that story of the people left behind is, is just traumatic.
0: It's an absolutely uh, harrowing situation and a harrowing description of a conflict um, that so far is defying solution um, to to the tragic detriment of so many blameless people on the ground in Sudan. Well, this week, North Korea publicly acknowledged that a U.S. Army private crossed into that country from South Korea in July. You may have heard about it. Travis King was arrested after crossing the heavily fortified border while on a civilian tour of the Joint Security Area. That's the the place where all the blue buildings, you've seen it in pictures. Um, Nick Wadhams, what did North Korea say in their announcement this week about his detention, why they have him and how he's doing?
5: Yeah, I mean, this was something that we had all been waiting for after Travis King um, fled over the border to North Korea last month, uh, essentially uh, North Korea's uh, state news agency said that um, he was looking for refuge uh, in North Korea or anywhere really because of what they called inhuman maltreatment and racial discrimination in the U.S. and in the military. Um, so, you know, for those of us who watch North Korea for a long time, this was not entirely surprising. North Korea uh, is essentially looking for any uh, propaganda opportunity uh, it can get from the U.S., uh, uh, out of the U.S., um, though, you know, the the picture is is very severely complicated by the fact that King uh, had faced allegations of assault in South Korea and had actually pleaded guilty uh, to assault and destroying public property, and was was actually on his way back um, to the U.S. Uh, to uh, face um, a potential uh, discharge from the military. So, a complicated picture, not not in, not entirely unsurprising for North Korea uh, to to try to use this as a propaganda win against the U.S.
0: and as a wedge. But Nick, uh, the timing of that statement, accusing the United States of racism, which is what drove uh, drove him out of the country. Is one thing, but yesterday, a UN Security Council meeting on human rights abuses in North Korea opened. Is using these types of attacks and wedge attacks trying to embarrass the United States on its own social problems sort of a way for North Korea to maybe push back on another narrative they're getting at the UN?
5: Well that's exactly right. I mean, uh, North Korea has pr- pretty much one, well, two allies at the UN, Russia uh, and China, um and you know they they are looking for that opportunity to sort of say, well, hey, you guys are telling us uh we have it bad here. Look at all the problems uh in the United States. Uh so that, that's certainly a tactic. I mean, that that North Korea human rights uh meeting had been set up uh, for quite some time, so it, the, the timing does not seem coincidental and and with North Korea uh looking for propaganda opportunities whenever they can, uh, you, you can bet that they were paying uh, very close attention to that um, and saw this as an opportunity to really just push back against against the U.S. and its allies that are going to take a
0: very, very uh, strong line against North Korea in that meeting. Well, here's what the United States had to say this week via White House Press Secretary Korean Jean-Pierre on Thursday.
4: We can't verify the comments that are being attributed to Private King, obviously. Uh, we remain focused on his safe return, as we have been saying for these past several weeks, and we are working through uh, all available channels to achieve that outcome.
0: Um, Idris, the U.S. officials say that they believe King crossed the border intentionally. We've heard that part of the story, but they've declined to classify him as a prisoner of war or really to say much else about him at all, really. What do you make of that?
6: Yeah, so they have, you know, very frequently reached out to the North Koreans about Private King, you know, saying, where is he? What's his status? But the one thing they haven't done is invoke sort of a prisoner of war status. What that would have meant is he would have had certain rights under the Geneva Convention, like being able to reach out to his family getting red cross, uh, medical professional to see him. And they haven't done that yet. And I think the thinking behind that is sort of what you mentioned, right? It appears to be a case where one of their soldiers willingly went into North Korea. They don't really know whether he wants to come back, whether what the North Koreans are saying is true. And so it makes it legally pretty tricky for them to sort of designate him as a prisoner of war. And I think the thinking at the White House and the Pentagon and the State Department is if that they were to sort of designate him as a prisoner. prisoner of war what difference would it make you know would it somehow um, make the North Koreans give him access to those sort of things like Red Cross medical professionals probably not so I think the calculus and you know a final decision hasn't made been made but the calculus is sort of look it probably won't improve his condition Um, it could be used by the North Koreans for more propaganda purposes so let's just sit tight for now and sort of see how this develops.
0: Well, let's move on to the latest out of Niger and the fallout from last month's coup in that West African nation. The Economic Community of West African States, or ECOWAS, is discussing military uh, intervention in Niger. Now, the 15 member states met in Ghana this week, and most of the nations agreed to join a standby force in Niger. A couple of countries, Cat Verde, Mali Burkina Faso, and Guinea, did not agree. Uh, most of West Africa seems prepared to intervene in Niger after the coup and plenty of fighting post-coup. But Idris, um, the military coup is one thing in the capital of Niamey. At the same time, there's also fighting with Al-Qaeda-affiliated and even Islamic State-affiliated Islamist insurgents in sort of the hinterlands of the country. It's complicated. How are these two major dynamics interacting at this point?
6: Yeah, it's interesting because I think, you know, for the average person, uh, I think when you think of militancy, terrorism, you know, the usual focus goes to, you know, Southwest Asia and the Middle East. But in reality, what we've seen, and I think, you know, studies have shown this in recent years is that the Sahel is really um, becoming this hotspot for what is seen as global terrorism. And, you know, in the past couple of years, um, it accounted for about 43% of all deaths related to terrorism. And so there's a lot of interest in sort of terrorism in sort of the Niger, Burkina Faso and Mali region. Um, We're seeing groups like Al-Qaeda affiliates and Islamic State militants. And what we saw the other day was an ambush against Niger forces, which killed about 17 of their troops, um, as sort of that border region between Burkina Faso, Mali, and Niger. And so, um, you know, the question that a lot of folks in the U.S. and, you know, global community are asking is that the United States was, um, you know, really helping out in that border region with sort of their drones and their ISR assets, like, you know, the unarmed drones that they have flying from Niger. And now that that has temporarily been put on pause because of the coup, what does that mean for these militant groups? Does that mean that they will increase? Does that mean that they will sort of be able to sort of reconstitute, have camps, knowing that the Americans aren't looking? And so I think there's a lot of concern going forward what this means for sort of that region. Um, And, and, you know, the coup leaders obviously have an interest in maintaining peace and security, but the reality is they're not going to get the same level of funding, the same level of support. And so can they really carry out um, the type of things that they might actually want to be doing?
0: Now, Idris... The United States has a thousand troops in Niger. You just uh, alluded to it. Their focus is Al Qaeda and Islamic State uh, affiliated extremists. But you just said something that really interested me: is, is has the coup? It sounds like the coup has caused American forces there, with their, their, their drones and ISR, to stand down, pull back because it's unstable. And now maybe there's a, there's a vacuum, there's a little bit of running room for Islamist extremists and Al Qaeda militants in the area.
6: Yeah, so they've got two bases. The United States has two bases in Niger. One sort of in the capital, Niamey, and then one in Agadez, which is this, you know, massive drone base, cost more than $100 million. So in total, they've got about 1,100 troops. And, you know, they were carrying out partner missions with the Nigerians. They were flying their drones around the Sahel, um, really in support of that. And when the coup started, a decision was made to um, essentially put everything on pause. They said, look, for our safety, we're going to mostly stick to our bases. The Nigerian military said the airspace is closed. So the U.S. essentially cannot fly drones or planes Mm. unless they get exceptions. So it's a situation where I think there's a lot of frustration because the U.S., can't you know come out and say, look, this is really hurting us because they do need Niger pretty badly. Niger is really, frankly, one of the only countries in the region where the U.S. has a footprint. We saw Mali and Burkina Faso both have coups of their own, and so they don't really have the ability to carry out operations from either of those countries. Um, but yeah, there's there's a lot of frustration right now, um, and I think they're very very eager to start getting those planes flying because you know this is one attack that we saw in the past week the likelihood that this continues um, is and grows is pretty high. Uh, Nick Wadams, jump in here.
5: Well, I was just going to say, you know, one of the things that has really struck me about uh, this conflict so far is really, in some ways, the powerlessness of the United States, uh, particularly given all that it has invested in Niger uh, to really Achieve any sort of outcome that it wants. I mean, the the, um, the acting de- deputy secretary of state, Toria Newland, uh, went to Niger to Niamey uh, August seventh, and she couldn't even get in to see uh, the president, uh, who was uh, essentially locked away. And and not only could she not see the president, she wasn't even able to see. The senior most leaders of the coup. So while it's always a a very dangerous thing to suggest that the U.S. and its allies uh, really can shape the outcome of um, situations like this, uh, you really are confronted with a sense that in this case in particular, especially after it's committed so many millions of dollars to a place like Niger, how the U.S. just is completely without power to uh, in any way control or, or even get in to see the leaders uh, and has just have just been so completely rebuffed by the coup leaders.
0: Operating in a place of utter chaos, and it, and it pays to keep on our minds, as we said, 1,000 American troops on the ground in Niger amid chaos. Well-protected, we hope and we expect, uh, but 1,000 nonetheless. Um, let's stay on the African continent for just a moment, move to Ethiopia um, where an airstrike hit a busy town square on Sunday. At least 26 people died in that airstrike. The explosion happened in the northern Amhara region, where local militia had been fighting the army. Nina, there's been peace in the Tigray region um, since a peace deal last November. So what's happening now in Amhara? Why the flare-up?
7: Well, I think there was a degree of misplaced optimism back in November over the direction that Ethiopia was moving. I was actually in Addis in November, just as the peace deal uh, was getting uh, you know, squared away and, and signed. And I met a lot of Ethiopians that had a lot of um, skepticism. They were very skeptical uh, about the peace deal. Uh, Abe Ahmed, prime minister, his international reputation was you know, shredded because of the civil war and over his government's response in Tigray. Um, It was a terrible, brutal war. Half a million civilians at least died. Uh, Now he's embroiled in this new conflict. Amhara is the second largest region in Ethiopia. Uh, Ironically, it had actually helped Uh, to supply troops to stop Tigrayan forces from ousting the prime minister. Uh, A lot of international alarm bells going off. um, And essentially, the fighting and the violence is coming from a group of militias who say that they're defending their region from uh, the government and other ethnic groups. Um, And I think just the thing to remember with Ethiopia is that it's huge, but also the threat of ethnic warfare and tribalism in Ethiopia is ever present. Uh, So I think it was always slightly naive to imagine that peace would hold. Um, And, you know, the reports that we're getting is that the Amhara state government is basically about to collapse. Uh, Officials are fleeing. Um, It's a very precarious situation. Nina,
0: are the militias from Amhara that you mentioned, are they strong enough, big enough, threatening enough to potentially push the country back into a civil war?
7: Possibly. I mean, they've got roots going back decades and, um, you know, they certainly applied their force and strength to the government when they were uh, fighting in Tigray. Um, But they feel, I think, if, you know, the reports are accurate, uh, that they were let down by the Tigray peace deal because they were excluded from talks and uh, the Amhara Association of America called that peace deal uh with Tigray a war pact and that perception basically flared up in uh, in Amhara uh so again uh, the prime minister's efforts i think to restore ethnic and tribal unity across Ethiopia seems to be failing but but yes i mean uh there's definitely a, a force of will and strength in Amhara that's frightening
0: Adris uh, just for a minute here um What's your observation of Ethiopia, the Tigray region, um, and the strength of potential militias
6: to return Ethiopia to chaos? Yeah, I mean, I think the interesting thing is, you know, these militiamen, you know, were essentially partners with the government uh, when they were sort of fighting the Tigray region it doesn't take a huge amount of militia leaders, rebels to sort of lead a country into civil war. And I think the expectation is that it wouldn't take much for, you know, a country that obviously is extremely important, you know, was second largest in Africa to to fall into civil war, um, and it wouldn't take much, you know, for for uh, the militiamen to do that. So I think there's a lot of concern because um, we, you know when you have a country, really any country, and Ethiopia is you know perfect example of that, that has high potential, but social issues like unemployment um, and inflation um, for you know combustible force um, like a militia in an important region to be added in to then lead to a sort of a broader civil war in the country, and then you know. impact it might have on the region as a whole.
0: All right, gang, we have to check in on the grinding war in Ukraine. Um, Always we have to check in on it. But in particular news this week that the long-anticipated counteroffensive by Ukrainian forces, particularly in the south of the country, appears, appears, maybe too early to tell, to not be going as well as the Ukrainians certainly and the Americans in the EU had hoped, and that that offensive seems to be in some ways grinding to a halt near Crimea. Nina, give us the latest on the counteroffensive and what the situation on the ground is.
7: Yeah, well, it kind of unraveled almost right away. Um, I think what no one anticipated was how stuck Uh, Ukraine's ground forces would get carrying this new Western equipment, uh, the minefields. They were also battered by Russian forces uh, much more effectively than was expected. Ukraine then changed tactics. It's been holding back armor, sending in smaller units, moving much slower. So you're right, it's turned into a much longer, harder slog than anyone anticipated. But I also think that the notion of total victory over Russia is very misplaced. It's a massive war massive cost uh, the task is massive Russian defenses go much deeper in places uh, than than perhaps was was expected. Uh, Ukraine doesn't have the air power the air dominance uh, to support its ground war. Um, so you know I I think um, it has ground uh, on much more slowly. Um, And I think there's a sense that that Ukraine tactically could have been a lot more efficient. Um, So I think that's the snapshot.
0: Nick, uh, Nina mentions air superiority and that Ukraine just doesn't have it and your mind immediately goes to F-16s to the aircraft that uh, the U.S., of course, could provide, um, has committed to provide, but has dragged, fe- has dragged its feet on providing to Ukraine. So ha- what's happening with uh, our advanced fighter jets and, and air dominance or air superiority for Ukraine here?
5: Well, uh, just today, in fact, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan confirmed that the U.S. has approved uh, sending F-16s uh, to Ukraine, not from the U.S., but from Denmark and the Netherlands. They're going to be willing to do that. But, you know, there's a, there's always a big question about numbers and timing. For one thing, you know, pilots need to be trained um, on the F-16s. And Ukraine has said, you know, we have very capable pilots Uh, And they can be trained up very quickly. But uh, the expectation from Ukraine as well as the U.S. and its allies is that those pilots uh, would not be able to uh, fly F-16s over Ukraine uh, potentially uh, until next year. So uh, there's going to be a big delay there. And then then the other question is numbers. How many pilots – would Ukraine actually have? Um, Maybe as few as a dozen who could fly those planes. And then the final question is a matter of parameters. You know, what do you do with those planes once they're in the air? I mean, one of the challenges in this invasion all along has been uh, the West's real unwillingness and also Ukraine's unwillingness to hit targets deep inside Russia's borders. So Russia can essentially stash weapons, material, its entire air force on its side of the border, and they cannot be hit. Uh, And the F-16s, you can be sure, are not going to be allowed. If they did, they would probably be shot down, but they're not going to be allowed to stray anywhere except over Ukrainian territory.
0: Henry Spencer sent us these thoughts uh, over our email. We can't blame the Ukrainians when we did not give them those F-16s to combat the Russians. Imagine us fighting like uh, how we have asked the Ukrainians to fight. It's unfair. That comes to us from Henry Spencer uh, on the issue of those planes and those F-16s. Idris Ali, we have you back. Um, I want to ask you about some reporting from the Washington Post just last night uh, reporting that a classified U.S. intelligence analysis predicts that Ukraine won't reach and reclaim one of its key goals, the key city of Melitopol in the south, which is near Crimea. Why is it so important?
6: So it's essentially seen as most important of the three axes. You know, it really would give Ukraine a clear route through Russian-occupied territory. And, you know, it's it's the reality is that I think we're seeing the optimism uh, over the past 18 months meet the reality um, of Russian defenses. And, you know, the U.S. has been very, very careful not to be skeptical in public about what is happening in Ukraine. And so to see a report That shows really the reality of US thinking. It it is pretty amazing. And it, because it's not only predicting, or it's not only showing what is happening currently, it's sort of looking into the future. And I think it's going to lead to a lot of sort of soul searching in Kyiv. Um, Sort of do they now look at, you know, the other two axes? Do they continue on the three axes? It's sort of going to lead to a lot of questions um, in Western capitals as well. You know, what else needs to be given to Ukraine to sort of change this prediction of U.S. intelligence agencies for the future?
0: And that last question, Nina, is a critical one, quite apart from military strategy along the three axes. Political strategy in this country, um, there's pretty broad support among Republicans for supporting the war effort in Ukraine, but it is far from unanimous. And there are a growing, growing list of Republicans, Trumpist Republicans primarily, who don't want to spend another penny on Ukraine, are threatening government shutdowns if we spend another penny on Ukraine. I wonder how this latest news might be feeding the domestic political situation here at home and America's ability to keep supporting Ukraine.
7: Yeah, I mean, it's a sobering um, thought. Uh, In particular, I think one question is where it leaves Europe if public support and Republican support continues to soften uh, as we're obviously approaching the next presidential election. And if Americans start believing it's a huge waste of money, um, Europe will find itself, not just Ukraine, but Europe will find itself in a very different place. And uh, yeah, it's a very sobering thought.
0: I want to move us on to some China news as we turn the corner uh, on the back part of the show here. A spokesperson for the Chinese government says the country welcomes a visit from the U.S. Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo. The invitation came as the United States imposed new foreign investment controls that have already impacted several Chinese companies. So it might have been a surprise to hear that there was an invitation or Nick, was there actually an invitation? What's, what's going on with this latest mini overture from the cabinet level toward the Chinese?
5: Well, this is really the visit that China always wanted. So you have seen in recent months as the U.S. tries to walk this fine line between uh, restricting investment and uh, reorienting supply lines and trying to push back against China while also seeking some form of uh, accommodation, as as President Joe Biden puts it, to put a floor under the relationship to essentially keep things from getting any worse. Uh, Janet Yellen went. Uh, Anthony Blinken went. Uh, But the person the Chinese really have wanted to see all along is Gina Raimondo, because as the Commerce Secretary, she is essentially at the very center of the U.S. push to limit exports, to control the flow of certain technology to China. So uh, I wouldn't expect that this is going to be a a kumbaya moment. Uh, We are so far beyond that uh, between the U.S. and China. But uh, they really want to get in a room with her, one Suspects in part to uh, read her the Riot Act, but also to get a sense of what is coming next. Uh, The U.S. announced a new executive order last week uh, that would limit some outbound investments into China. Uh, a lot of the rulemaking around that order—it's not going to—it's going to take at least another year. That's going to go through Treasury, but it's also going to go straight through Raimondo's department. So, you know, in an administration where China is just at the center of of its foreign policy, commerce is really seen to be at the very center of that. So, this is a a person they really want to get face to face with
0: in Beijing. They really, really want to get face to face with the Commerce Secretary uh, Nina. But behind her is this. Biden administration strategy, long-term strategy, targeting China with foreign investment controls. Um, What exactly is the long-term strategy, far beyond uh, whether the Commerce Secretary makes a visit or not?
7: I'd say that for the Biden administration, it's careful and it's targeted. For China, uh, it's not really about the money. I mean, I absolutely agree with Nick that um, they're desperate to see the Commerce uh, Secretary, but I mean, China can effectively get money Elsewhere, it was always about intelligence. It was always about the expertise that say if a Silicon Valley company invested in China, you know, they'd often, along with the money, offer mentoring and expertise. So that's really, I think, what China's motivation is. And the Biden administration did not want to harm uh, you know, wider US technology companies. But, you know, I like the phrase kind of realigning it. Um, China is not in a very strong position. Uh, economically right now. It's suffering from a confidence crisis Um, and, you know, after the pandemic, everybody was very optimistic because there was a brief flurry of spending. Everyone thought, oh, you know, China's back. Uh, There were a couple of good months and a sigh of relief, but then that didn't continue. You know, spending is down. We've talked a lot about deflation uh, the last week. Um, It's not in a very strong position to retaliate. I mean, it could restrict exports of, uh, you know, rare earths, electric vehicles other components uh you know there's a bunch of stuff that use uh, those those minerals and and rare earth so it could retaliate but i think it's in a very weakened position but again i think what china was really after all along was the intelligence
0: well when the u.s commerce secretary visits beijing she has a lot on her plate in terms of u.s policy u.s trade controls on china and maybe about her plate itself And that's because this week, U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen made news when she told CNN's Aaron Burnett about a special meal that she had in China on an earlier visit.
4: There was a delicious mushroom dish. I was not aware that uh, these mushrooms had hallucinogenic uh, properties. I learned that later. I can tell you. Later, like in your, when you were, were sleeping and by having by visions, visions or? yeah <laughs> well, I, I was read that if the mushrooms are cooked properly, which I'm sure they were at this very good restaurant, that they have no impact. But all of us enjoyed the mushrooms, the restaurant, and none of us felt, felt any ill effects um, from having eaten them.
0: Mm, no ill effects, Madam Secretary, but no effects at all? Uh, Stay tuned. No, that's uh, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen telling the story of her latest trip to Beijing and maybe a bit of of a warning sign for the Commerce Secretary. Well, before we go, while we're on international news, let's leave on some of the most key international news of all. The Women's World Cup, the FIFA Women's World Cup on this weekend, not only the final, but also the third place match, Spain and England face off. In the finals on Sunday, it'll be the first all-European match to watch since 2003. Um, Nick, what is your take on the match coming up?
5: Well, I think uh, Spain now, uh, I hate to say this to my English friends, but Spain is is slightly uh, favored to win, especially because they've been playing so well since the quarterfinal. I mean, I've, I've spent a lot of time thinking about this one and, you know, the fact that the U.S., um, was ousted from the tournament so early on in such an unprecedented fashion, you know, as the as the parent of three girls, uh, 15, 12, and 9, all three of whom play soccer. I seem to spend most of my life uh, at, on the soc- sidelines of soccer games. <laughs> you just wonder, you know, how did the U.S. get to this point? And part of it is sort of that we we seem to have come to this pay-for-play model in the United States where to get your kids better and better at soccer you have to pay more and more and you know watching that U.S. team is something I sort of see watching my own kids play soccer. You, you uh, now Nick controversial
0: f- controversial hang on I, I want to bring in uh, Esther Ch- uh, Chamakili host here at WAMU 1A's parent station uh, who wanted to sit in because Esther you're a huge soccer fan mm-hmm. um, I don't want to cut Nick off but you're going to be watching these matches as well and you have an analysis of your own uh, on what this means for U.S. soccer, but what's going to be happening this weekend?
4: Yeah, well, I think regarding the, the women and the U.S. women's national team and the pay to play uh, uh, comment there, uh, you know, I think it's unreasonable to ask any professional athlete to play their sport at an elite level without being fairly compensated. No male athlete would do it, and no women should. Uh, either so, uh, really, that's all I have to say. Point
0: taken. Predictions for this weekend, real quick.
4: All right, so yeah, this is going to be a big match on on a lot of levels. It's it's England managed to do what the men couldn't do last year during the men's World Cup, uh, but Spain is in the final now, despite uh, overcoming huge adversity with problems with their federation back home. So it does promise to be a very interesting match this year. Um, I think uh you know as far as as far as who I'm going to be cheering for since Spain ousted Sweden who ousted the US uh the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so? I'm s- I'm rooting for Spain.
0: Spain. Uh yes. <laughs> we only have 1 second, Nina. Response.
7: Wow, how can I respond <laughs> okay. to that? I mean, I don't know what to say.
0: <laughs> well, <laughs> I think your shock says it all. I want to sit for this entire conversation, especially between Nina and what you just had to say, Esther. I think you guys should take it outside. The rest of us will be watching on Sunday. I want to thank our guests for this hour, Nina Maria Potts, Director of Global News Coverage for Feature Story News, Adrees Ali, National Security and Foreign Policy Correspondent at Reuters, and Nick Wadhams with Bloomberg News. Mike Kidd is our sound designer and engineer. Chris Costano is our digital editor. Maya Garg is our senior managing producer. Eileen Humphreys is the editor and producer of 1A On Demand with help from Matthew Simonson. Barb Anguiano produces our podcast also with help from Matthew Simonson. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington. It's distributed by NPR. Host prerogative, the last word, go England, go Lionesses, bring it home. It's coming home. America supports you. Go Lionesses, victory England. I'm Todd Zwillick with Vice News. It's 1A.
4: These
5: days, news comes at you fast. But the truth? Getting there
4: takes time. There's something that hasn't been disclosed yet. Embedded is a podcast that takes the time to look beyond the headlines. How how did this happen? How did we get here? With original documentary storytelling. Listen to NPR's Embedded wherever you get your podcasts. On this week's Wild Card, we talk with Issa Ray about those moments where our lives could have gone another direction.
5: Definitely wasn't supposed to be with that guy at all.
4: At all. But I still think about it. I'm Rachel Martin. Issa Ray tells us how to make peace with the path not taken. That's on the Wild Card podcast from NPR, the game where cards control the conversation.
6: Hey, I hear you have a birthday coming up. Yeah, you...